Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 266. At time of release, a new episode every day for the rest of the week. So far, you spent time with Don Mancini, the creator of the Child's Play franchise. Still to come, the talented storytellers behind the new series, Day of the Dead, and I Know What You Did Last Summer. This time around, we invite you to share in a very special conversation with the absolutely brilliant Kate Siegel and Mike Flanagan. Their latest experience, Midnight Mass, is truly a gift to behold and has been igniting some of the most deeply ruminative reviews, praise, and prose we've ever seen, turning critics and fans into poets. Explore its terrifying elegance in an abundance of detail. Relive some of the most impactful moments from the series from an all-new perspective with a focus on the exceptional cast. Go inside the heart-wrenching scenes shared by Robert Longstreet and Inara Simone, for example, crafting the poignant episode five and the indelible impact Kate's portrayal of Aaron has left with her, and so much more. With a look ahead to new projects like the fall of the House of Usher, Mike and Kate are hilarious, thoughtful, and absolutely touching. You are officially invited to attend Mass for episode 266. We will warn you, there are a hell of a lot of spoilers. That said, let's go. We invite you into our circle. If that's you, give us a sign. Hey, this is Kate Siegel. And this is Mike Flanagan. And you are listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. Where have you gone? Good morning. I know I'm not who you expected to see. Just know I'm only here to help, and I look forward to meeting you all. I'm a pretty rational guy. Something's happening here. You're gonna let me in. We are living in a miraculous time. You're gonna let me in. You're gonna let me in. What are you doing? Come on. What is wrong with you? Stop it. It's not funny. Screen. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Okay, let's get this party started. You guys know the routine. No, oh, yeah. You could swear, do whatever, fuck whatever. I'm so whatever. excited we'll for these out. intros. You guys do the best oh intros. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all true. No pressure. Uh, okay. No, the most pressure. <laughs> and now here's these <laughs> assholes. Right, exactly. These <laughs> <laughs> fuckers are back uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio. First of all, as a wonderful actor whose beautiful approach to everything she does is astonishing. She has an innate ability to ignite scenes with poignancy and power. As an audience, we get lost in the throes of her performances to the extent that she masterfully fades the lines of where she ends and her characters begin, crafting a perfect theatrical alchemy, the space where the walls of the theater evaporate. Her earlier work includes multiple Emmy-nominated projects, Ghost Whisperer, Numbers, and Castle. In 2016, she co-wrote and starred in the award-winning feature Hush. That was an impactful triumph and one of the best thrillers 
killers ever made. After appearing in the magnificent Ouija Origin of Evil in Gerald's Game, she gave life to Theodora Crane in what has been referred to countless times as the greatest horror TV series in history, the 10-time award-winning The Haunting of Hill House, and she returned for an unforgettable arc in The Haunting of Bly Manor. With the list of exciting things to come, she is infinitely the most compelling actor of our generation. Also here with us, a filmmaker whose work is so deeply thoughtful and dynamic that it turns critics into poets. His catalog is wrought with mystique, horror, and prose. The 12-time award-winning short Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan, preceded the now classic 2013 feature, along with 2011's Absentia, then Hush, Before I Wake, the most fun horror movie we've ever seen, Ouija Origin of Evil, and the most disturbing, with Gerald's Game. In 2018, he took us through the doors of The Haunting of Hill House, a blissfully conducted symphony of grief and the strength of family through the lens of horror. Returned for the Emmy-nominated Haunting of Bly Manor and crafted what is hailed as the best Stephen King adaption of all time, 2019's Doctor Sleep. He has been honored with over 33 awards. His work continues to be examined, meditated on, celebrated, and shared. There isn't one other filmmaker who has connected people in this way on quite this level, and we are lucky to have his legacy to continue to look forward to and explore. The new Netflix show, Midnight Mass, well, it is their masterpiece. We are honored to welcome back Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel. Yeah! Well, I think we've covered it. Jesus That's Christ. pretty much it. Ah, <laughs> holy crap. We can go now. Oh, you Man. guys. You wow. know what? We must admit, like, kind of intimidated to talk to you guys about this one. Wow. Because it, it is a song that has been sung back to you so eloquently time and time again over the past few months. I've never seen anything like it. How does it feel to have the work connect in such a powerful way, inspiring all these thoughtful tweets and the press and what people are saying about it? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's insane. The, the thing about Midnight Mass is it was always such a personal project. What, I, what I'm really amazed and energized by is seeing how it connects with people personally and, and while the the tweets are great and the and the critics are are fascinating to read, I've been getting. Um, I recently rejoined Instagram for the first time yeah, in a very right. long time, and it, I had forgotten to disable uh, the DM uh, thing on Instagram <laughs> on, on all my other accounts. <laughs> yeah. It's di- it's disabled, but on Instagram I forgot, and and so all of a sudden there was this huge flood of message requests, and I started to read them, and I'm getting these incredible messages from people who have who are in recovery or who have family members who are in recovery, um, who have a whole kind of, uh, a, a whole swath of different experiences within different organized religions and people who have suffered miscarriages or lost kids. Um, people who are really wrestling with a lot of thoughts about God and the universe and death and life. And, and that, you know, there, there was certainly a lot of, of, personal connections that I would find with Hill House, but this one has been different and the messages that come in have touched me in a really profound way. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, you, you worry with, with a story like this because it's so specific and it, it's so rooted in, in my life that you worry it won't connect with people because it's too kind of right specific. Um, but it, what I love is seeing how, so many things about what I viewed as my specific and individual experience are, are, it turns out to be very universal. And, and so that's, that's been really awesome. And Kate, how about you? How does it feel to have something so close to you resonate so deeply with so many people? I like Mike enjoyed 
the, just an influx of Instagram messages. But there's a second layer to it, which is that like the love of my life has really shared his soul to the world. And so I get very protective of this show when people start to sling opinions around, like just firing off tweets from the bathroom. I feel like more than anything else I've done, I want people to sit down, turn off their phones and watch this show and listen to what Mike has to say through the voices of some of my favorite actors I've ever had the chance to work with. And so my Instagram messages and and tweets and stuff tend to be very open and vulnerable. And, And for the first time, I find myself trying to respond to as many people as possible and say, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for understanding what we are trying to say. But I also want to burn the internet down because <laughs> my nature is, is, a, is a protector. Like I want to protect this art. I want to protect this specific art because of how personal it is to Mike. What is behind the magic trick of having the audience have something that they can use to look inward and a work that they can play an active part in the meditation in your mind. What are the elements of that incantation that you've kind of woven into this to enable that? I think it has, um, that's never what we think, at least what I'm thinking of when we're making it. I think it's that Mike opens a door for every single person on his set to be completely committed and to give everything without fear of being judged, to be as obsessive about their jobs as they want to be. And that level of, like you say alchemy, but if you're doing a spell like that, you have to put all of your focus on it. And it can't be fake. And you can't be thinking, God, I hope it's a hit. Or I hope Twitter likes this. Or I hope people think I'm pretty. What you have to think is just focused attention on the story you're telling. And even when we were making it, like the sets kind of vibrated with that level of intensity and belief and faith and and commitment and love to the people we were telling the story with and the story we were telling. And I think when that kind of truth comes out in art, people can't help but be pulled to it. And you can't fake it. Like if you're telling the truth on camera, like Mike or Michael Fuminari and the whole cast and everyone down to like focus puller, when they're telling the truth, that gets captured. And then when people see that, it draws them in. Well, it's it's interesting because this... I've been thinking about this question, you know, a lot since it came out. It's like, what, what is it about this show? And, 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 and why does it kind of vibrate with me the way that it does? And why does it seem to vibrate with other people? And the, the best I can come up with, my best guess is that one thing we all have in common is I think we're all kind of standing at the edge of a cliff. It's, you know, we're all looking down into, into the unknown and that unknown is, kind of the biggest question that we have as people, which is what happens when we die. And I don't fucking know. And, and I don't trust anyone that says that they do, but I know that we all stand there. And like, sometimes we're standing so close to it that our toes are over the edge and we feel terrified and we're looking down into that darkness. And what we can do as people is take that lack of information. We can take those shadows and we can kind of form them into answers. And I think we all do this and this is why we have religion and this is why we we take these intense fears and insecurities and we try to turn them into other things. And and so I feel like that was always what was driving this show is is 
standing at the edge of that cliff and looking down and kind of saying, okay, what, what, let me, let me write down what I see, what patterns I see in the, in the dark there. And I think, um, for a lot of people that resonates a lot. And then, and then for some people it doesn't right now, which is interesting because I feel like in that case, it's like, give it, give it a second. Um, because sooner or later, we're all going to be at the edge of that cliff, right? You know, yeah. and mm-hmm. this was a really neat experience for us because we all got to kind of look over it together and to talk about what we saw or didn't see or what we wished to see together. And there are other, other people, I think, who, because of the busyness of life or, or because of the euphoria of, you know, uh, a run of really great things in their lives or things like that, or not having to have been walked up to that cliff before you know, that just aren't, aren't there and they aren't really looking over yet, but sooner or later they will. And this kind of storytelling will vibrate with them, I think, because it, I think it vibrates in all of us. So the, the this one was always different than the others because it just felt like it, it felt more, more, more than anything else I've gotten to work on. Like, the perfect place to put that anxiety. Right. <laughs> and you know, maybe it, maybe it would speak to people. There's a mystique that like an extra layer of mystique that's infused to this one. Some of it I find in just spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the show, but by not using the word vampire, for instance, yeah. right. You pose questions and possibilities as opposed to answers on massive themes, right? Like death and religion and faith and fanaticism I think that's a big ticket in that the viewers are constantly questioning. Well, why aren't, why aren't they saying this? Or maybe, maybe that is what an angel is. Maybe <laughs> that's what we're praying to. What yeah. is faith? What is religion? What is that thing? I love that element of it. Another really important element is music. It's such an important part of this journey. It's kind of like the spine of this whole thing. And I don't think I've heard as much on your previous projects, this one is extremely musical in the sense that it's got a lot of needle drops in it. A lot of that Neil Diamond stuff is Leonard Cohen, Gordon Lightfoot songs of that nature. What is behind the choices of those songs in particular? Is there anything that inspired that? When I was a kid, uh, on every road trip that we ever took, my mother played Neil Diamond's 12 Greatest Hits in the car. And so that music, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Neil Diamond fan because of it. And Neil Diamond is so just woven into my remembrance of my childhood and of my parents. And, and um, he also has an enormous um, gospel influence, you know, uh, and one of the songs we toyed around with using was brother loves traveling salvation show, which Tarantino just used to great effect in, in once upon a time in Hollywood. So we couldn't use it, but I don't know. There, there's something about when I think of religion, I think of my parents and I think of my childhood and when I think of them, I think of Neil Diamond. <laughs> so <laughs> it really just kind of snapped in. The The funniest thing about the musical escape of this show was in the beginning, it was only ever supposed to be the needle drops and the hymns. And we were going to have no instrumental score at all. And um, Netflix insisted on an instrumental score after we had turned in the first couple of episodes. Because it was even more kind of limiting and meditative without any uh, instrumental work and i think what the newtons did in response to that is is incredible I, I i vastly prefer this version of the show and i love the score that they made but it really was just these are the songs that i loved growing up and these are the hymns that i can't ever forget because i sang them so many hundreds of times in church 
and everything everything else you hear the Gordon Lightfoot uh, if you could read my mind was like my song in eighth grade um, or Harry Chapin was one I associate with my mother so it's played over Annie and the the other two we did Bartender by Dave Matthews which takes me way way way, way back and um, the most contemporary song we did it was was a cover of uh, the Leonard Cohen song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by without... Timmy and the Wax Shack? Yes, by Timmy and the Wax Shack. <laughs> Timmy and the Wax Shack. <laughs> Timmy and the Wax Shack. Um, which I got to tell you guys that story. But the, uh, uh, I had first heard it. I hadn't heard the the original recording. I had heard um, the Lumineers cover yeah. as a B-side while I was prepping Bly. And it was like the song I had on on repeat. And so once I learned the history of the song and heard the original, it was like, oh, this is fucking perfect. We'll get this in there. But... It's my favorite of all the soundtracks of anything I've gotten to work on. This is my favorite. Oh, it's stunning. I was listening to it in the car on the way here. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening to it nonstop, too. I think the Newton brothers, I mean, they're, they're fucking incredible, but every single time they do something for you, they top their previous work. They're yeah. always outdoing themselves. They're and awesome. for this, I mean, they have proved not only their versatility, but their passion and understanding of the delicacies of the source material with this and how to weave themselves out and in what they do. So amazingly perfect with this thing. And you know, it's funny. Remember, uh, <laughs> we had interviewed the Newton brothers and then I saw Andy at the arc light oh in the bathroom a great story. and I couldn't remember his name. I just associated <laughs> with Andy and James is uh, uh, Taylor is the Newton brothers. So I walked up to him, but I didn't know how to say Hey man. Yeah, hey man. So I was like, <laughs> I just went up to him and said, Newton brother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that, In but I sang it. Yeah, and I sang it to him. I was yeah. like, Newton brother. And he turned around. He's like, <laughs> what <guy>. the fuck? <laughs> and I was like, dude, it's Trev from the boot crew. You, he's like, Andy. I'm like, yeah, thank you. Thank you. How's it going, man? <laughs> oh, so but yeah, so Andy's in this, right? Is Yeah, it's he's Tim, Timmy. Timmy in the Wax Shack. Yeah. So what's he's the story Timmy. behind Timmy in the Wax Shack? Okay. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna tell this story. No one's ever heard this story. Oh, great. You're going right. to tell this story. Okay. I'm going to tell this story. So okay. um, when we were in the writer's room for Bly Manor, we were talking about the second episode where Miles is at school. And in a writer's room, there are no rules. You throw out whatever ideas, they all hit the wall. And everybody pitches stuff and writers will huddle. And, and we had this morning pitch for, for something that was going to happen in, in that episode. And the pitch that came out was, um, all right, so, you know, he's got his best friend, Timmy, Miles' best friend at school. And I was like, well, that's a little on the nose, but okay, keep going. <laughs> um, and they said, and, you know, Miles and Timmy are real excited. They want to get in with the big boys and they want to be invited to the Wax Shack. And I'm like, I, you're going to have to back that up. I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's so good. And, and they said, well, you know, and this, this was a, and this was a, this was several women who were pitching this at once. They're like, you know, you know how like, especially like younger, younger boys, like they all hang out at, they have like a wax shack and I'm like, no, <laughs> what? I don't know anything about that. And they said, yeah. And it's like, you go there and you like read porno mags. And I'm like, what? no, this is not what, where did you get this information about what it's like to grow up? as a boy um, because I've never <laughs> heard of this and they were like and yeah and it's like a, it's like a shack and they have fireworks and I'm like what <laughs> yeah like <laughs> this is this is insane tarps on the walls uh, yeah like, and, and, the like, and the older boys are like if you want to get access to the wax shack you've got to like really earn it and I'm like, what? I have no idea where you're getting your information, but this isn't a thing. <laughs> this isn't real. But I loved it. And I was like, we're going to need to get, we need to steer Bly Manor away from Timmy and the Wax Shack. <laughs> and we need to, we need to kind of pull it back. 
Um, and so it's one of, this happens all the time. They're always, but this one just stuck with me as like, they, they were so convinced that this was a universal experience that, that we all had. Um, that I was like, I, I don't know what to say to that. So I went to the Midnight Mass writer's room and was just like, you know, I heard the strangest pitch this morning. I just want to just take a poll, you know, like this is this is the story of Timmy in the Wack Shack. Am I alone in not having had this experience growing up or was I just not invited like to like the, to the, coolest, Wack, Shack. To the Wack Shack? And, <laughs> to the Wack and Shack. all the other guys in the room were like, no, we've never heard of anything like this in our lives. And then when it came time to, to name the band, I was like, well, you know, we have to we have to keep this alive somehow because it's just it's it became an anthem for like the strangest pitch. And so as a joke, I, I told the art director that I wanted the band to be Timmy in the Wack Shack. And it was and they printed shirts and like I still have oh, the we got shirts. We got the Timmy in the Wack Shack shirts. But it really is just it, it remains the most delightfully insane pitch I ever heard in a, in a writer's room. And um, it has now taken on a life of its own. And to the point that I was worried that it would be distracting in the show, that in, in the middle of this kind of very heavy conversation about, about the solstice and faith and sobriety and everything else that you'd kind of look over to the right and be like, does that drum say Timmy in the, the wax shack? shack? <laughs> that's, exactly our, that's exactly our reaction to that. <laughs> and, and I would go to, to Andy and be like, you're, you play Timmy and uh, meet, meet the wax shack here behind you. Um, they'll be playing. They'll be backing you up. And I remember Annabeth Gish when we placed her on the mark and she's sitting there for the scene talking about, you know, Father Paul looking at her over the years and and she's like, and she's looking over and she's like, does that we explain to me Timmy and the Wack Shack? And it's like, that's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's just a reference. It's a restaurant. It's a local restaurant. <laughs> the cro- you know, the Crockett Island a, yeah. restaurant. Yeah. Another thing musically, I was wondering if, because I know the Newton brothers imbued little secret musical Easter eggs in some of their work, like in Haunting and Hill House, right? The mm-hmm. note for each person in the family. Was there anything in here that, you had noticed um, there was uh, definitely we were riffing on traditional hymns. Yeah. So there there's echoes of a lot of that in, in, in the musical score. They I, I think when we talked about how to approach this, I was like, I'd love this not to be melodic for the most part. Right. I'd love you to just aggressively repurpose sound and just it's fine to have long kind of drawn out silences and then just hit us with a, you know, pluck a pluck a note on a on a string but do it ugly yeah there's know? a lot of that in episode one you kind of hear these weird overtones yeah and, like yeah. scraping really strings. cool or, or i was like just think of it as like this this community is rusted and it's old and it's a machine that can't get up and running again nice. so you know mm. lean into the waves the only rhythm comes from the waves of the water and the rest of it is the absence of people and the absence of life and then just find these little scrapey rusted metal noises but then they surprised me by turning around uh, and I said, we, we use just that and the hymns. We don't want to get emotional. We don't want to get, we don't want to want to be pulling people emotionally. We want this to be emotionally neutral. But then they did a, a instrumental version of, were you there? Mm-hmm. And it was full of strings and just like a sweeping score. And I was like, guys, we're never going to use this. This is too produced. It's too kind of grand. And I put it under Kate's monologue in the finale to just try it. Um, and I'm in my, I had my edit system and built in my trailer at the time. And I'm in the trailer in between takes. I'm just like sobbing, watching, watching the edit with this music. And it remains my favorite track of the thing, but I'm like, it's everything we said we wouldn't do. 
and, and they were so funny about it. They were like, I know we said we wouldn't do any of this. And then I said, and if we do the, if we do the hymn, just piano, single hand piano, like don't not, don't even fill it out with chords. Like, we, we hear you. So here's just the opposite of that. <laughs> but we really recommend you take a listen. And if you don't like it, that's fine. And I had to call them up and like still wiping tears and be like, fuck you guys. Like did exactly <laughs> what I asked you not to do. And it's perfect. Like it's so good. I, and this is probably digging into it way too much, but I thought it was fucking fascinating. Just the overall musical tone and hearing all those hymns, it puts you in a different sort of mood than you would watching a conventional TV show, not scored with things of that nature. And then there's something in the melodies. So I looked it up and keep in mind, I'm not a very religious person, but it was fascinating. So there's biblical codes that relate to ancient sacred music and the physics of creation found in the book of numbers. All right. So there's a chapter seven verses 12 through 83. There's a pattern of six repeating codes that reveal the six missing tones of the ancient solfeggio musical scale. That is the scale that's infused into all classic church hymns. And it's speculated that these six tones were either spoken or said by God at the moment of creation, if that's what you believe. The third tone is really interesting because it's at 528 hertz and it's me. So do re mi. Me is taken from the Latin term mira gestrum, which is Latin for miracle. Biochemists use that frequency to repair DNA. And there's research that it also repairs the central nervous system in alcoholics. Wow. And it's one of That's the main crazy. tones used in church hymns. In fact, there's one of the songs that the Newton brothers do, I think it's Mercy, that starts off with the 528 hertz tone. So I just thought that was fucking cool. That's, <laughs> fucking, like, cool. <laughs> that's fucking amazing. It's crazy. I but mean, yeah, yeah we talked about that all the time. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mostly, we actually had that conversation for Ouija, but if it, we, we didn't do it then, we did it here. Instead. But yeah, it was just yeah. wild, you know, again, just looking into why church hymns and the music and tonality that's reflected over the show has some sort of profound effect, but I guess there is sacred scripture that talks about it. Well, speaking of uh, that, numbers. Mm-hmm. You do play with numbers a lot in the show. The ones and fours that you know were placed on the sign in the in, in in front of the church. Also, I don't know if it's intentional, but if you start looking up biblical references and angel numbers. All the addresses that you use in Crockett Island pertain to crazy shit that actually corresponds with stuff what? that's... Okay, uh, this is, is it, my favorite stuff that happens. This is my favorite stuff because when, when pr- these psychotic, projects stop it? being ours, yeah, and people start looking things up and, and like that, like the numerical values of the home addresses and everyone's theories about the fours and the A's. I, I maybe Mike was doing this secretly in like his weird Howard Hughes notebooks at night, but it was never on the page, the scripts that we got. But I love the conspiracy theories, the like deep dive people who go into that and look all of that up. I love that musical stuff. But I'm right, Mike, like you, I mean, I know why Joe Bear is there, but I don't think you picked the addresses 
no specifically to match bible verses no 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 it, it, but the, this fascinates me on so many levels because the yeah. bible is like this it, it's, it, well it's exactly it, it, kind like, of what the show's about yeah, right exactly you can find proof of anything exactly yes there, there's so much there are layers upon layers upon layers and you can you can connect the dots and you can do all this stuff biblically so easily i love that that this happens and and it's it's so tempting to be like yes you've right yeah yeah you've uncracked you uh, you you are the one who <laughs> solved uh, my genius puzzle but you know I just I did the fours because they looked the most like A's and it was when I worked at a movie theater we had to change the marquee yeah, yeah, and yeah. we didn't have much money in, in this little uh, in this little town movie theater and I loved always when we'd run out of of certain letters and we'd run out of A's and E's the most because they'd get broken. And we didn't replace them right away, and I'd, I'd use other things. So it, that's all it was. But I, I, I've seen people who are like, actually, forty-four is a very incredibly, um, yeah, incredibly relevant number that associates with with Satan and goes into into this with Mark Twain and all this other stuff. And it's like, holy shit! Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, yep, we did that on, did purpose. It on purpose, right? Um, but yeah, there's so much in the Bible. The Bible can be. It, it is a. It is a Rubik's cube and a mirror all at once. And you can you see in it what you want to see in yourself, but you can also just rearrange it into these most into the most incredible patterns. And people have used it to justify, I think, things like this, which are incredibly yeah. fascinating, fascinating connections that imply some kind of master design behind it all, which is just riveting. And there are going to be people out there who are like, well, even if they didn't consciously make these connections this is how god works you know right um which is a fascinating thing and then uh it also though shows how people can weaponize coincidental connections within a text like that and use it as an excuse for war you know yeah for murder you know the the bible is that malleable and can be used to justify so many things. And when we had to come in and it, there would be these challenging moments where I was like, I want to biblically justify the perspective that it's okay to kill Joe. I want Bev to be able to prove it with the Bible. It was so easy to do. And then I, when it was like, okay, we want to, can we find a biblical precedent that makes it part of God's plan that a vampire burns up in the sun? Yes, we yeah. could. Yeah. And, and it wasn't that hard to do. It, it's, it was really incredible to me how right at the tip of our fingers kind of anything we wanted out of the book was there i i, I find that to be fascinating and and terrifying okay i just want to talk about how amazing the sets were yeah and so you had to build that whole community right? everything you see is built yeah what was the feeling like when it was done and both of you got to walk around in this amazing town that didn't exist well, the town was split into two locations, really. Um, everything on the water was at Gary Point Park in Steveston, which is right in the middle of a very populous marina. And so we had roped off what was just like the beautiful kind of dog walking park. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we completely sealed it off and built the houses there. But if you were to just look 10 feet to the left, you're suddenly staring down a huge metropolitan, oh, that's you know, wild. Uh, very wow. populated city in in Vancouver. Um, and it was wonderful and immersive to be there. And it was, I, I remember when Kate and, and Zach got there for the first time and I got to walk them through and be like, here's Aaron's house, you know, here's Zach's house. All of that stuff is incredible. The town square and all of the rest of Crockett and the church and everything else was built in the middle of a farm in Langley. 
So we were in a, like, uh, a cow field, really. Um, and it was just surrounded by hills, which meant it had no drainage and it would fill up. But uh, on either side was just blueberry fields. And they built, I mean, every road, every sidewalk, every structure, every single thing you see in the show is built. And it was like walking, it was like walking in its own world. And we had to build it because we had to burn it down. Some of my favorite nights were sitting in town square or when you went into the, um, the general store, it was stocked with food and, uh, the ADs would yell at us for stealing candy throughout the day, (laughs) um, of which Kate and I were some of the worst offenders. Oh, just terrible. My, my pockets were full of contraband, but it sat there for months in the elements. And so the joke became on us by the end, because we would steal a bag of Skittles and open it up and it would be like eating pebbles. (laughs) <laughs> um, and i think rahul, I think Cole rahul broke, broke a tooth, a tooth. yeah no yeah, way. He did. yeah yeah uh, he did. morgan oh, i'm gonna tell this story yeah, for him because he's not here and he loves this story but everybody he rahul who having worked with flanagan before had this idea in his head of like monologue day which you know zach and i call it monologue day too which is the equivalent of the way like an eight-year-old girl thinks of their wedding day in Rahul's head. He's like, on monologue day, I get to do whatever I want. And everyone's <laughs> nice to me. And I'm the best. But <laughs> like most eight-year-old girls, when Rahul got to monologue day, things started falling apart. Like I think that was Mike was quarantined, not with COVID, but with a cold. So he had to direct cold. from yeah. the trailer. Mm-hmm. And so Rahul's getting direction from like a disembodied voice on a walkie talkie and he's really his monologue day princess party is falling apart (laughs) he walks out of the general store and he looks at morgan rad and he goes well it's my monologue day so i'm just gonna take some candy and he takes i think it was laffy taffy and he went in and he bit into it and his tooth cracked oh my gosh it was and so his his wedding was ruined on this (laughs) The eve of his monologue day. You know, <laughs> poor man. Can't catch a break, that sheriff. Can't catch a break. There's a there's an authenticity when you're walking through the space like that, though, and, and everything's dressed and everything's uh, to the point that like people are taking food because it's real. Yeah. And people are sitting on the steps and um, you felt like you were in Crockett. I mean, it really it was that immersive. And because we had abandoned our sets when the pandemic hit, we were only four days away from shooting when when they everything shut down all of the sets got overgrown while we were gone and when we came back they had been out in the elements and the grass had grown up over them and and the wood had rotten and i think the funny one was we weren't allowed in riley's house because a bird uh seabirds had made a nest in there and there were eggs and there were little hatchlings and so nobody was allowed in the house And we had to hope that the birds vacated and learned how to fly before we needed to shoot in there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, the interiors, you you built the interiors, too? Sometimes. Uh, No, the interiors are on stage for the the scene work. But we had interiors for when people were up against windows. Sure, yeah. So it wasn't like we had to do huge work in there. But we had to be inside the structures. Yeah. And that's also where we built Video Village and and things like that. That's where the crew hid. Wow. So they're all multi-purpose. Yeah. And they were were hollow inside, but you had floors and monitors and, and other things. And often there'd be just a giant hole in the floor that led to sand. But uh, I remember that we couldn't build monitors in Riley's house. We couldn't go into the Flynn house for a while because of the birds. And and it was wonderful, though, because everything had overgrown so much that when we got back, it just it looked so much more authentic. It didn't look like we just built it and painted it like it. It really had kind of rotten. So it was it was pretty awesome. 
And because of all of that, there's a certain feeling of homesickness that I have sometimes. Like a wave will come over you and be like, oh, I miss Crockett. I miss, because I miss it Crockett. felt like a place. Like I miss Crockett Island, but you can't go back there because for a variety of reasons, you can never go home again. But um, it felt so real because it was so real that I'm homesick for a place that didn't really exist. Right. That's a wonderful thing about being an actor, right? What would you say, Kate, are the lingering effects of performing material of such poignancy with another actor in terms of bonding creatively for the future? The magic that galvanizes that cast as a troupe and a lot of the stuff that you experienced with Zach and different characters. I think I feel it most intensely with Zach because we went through something truly intimate together, but we never knew each other before we worked together. And so with Michael Trucco or Samantha Sloyan, I felt I had a history with them. And so working with Sam, the intimacy of those of that connection was okay. But with Zach, now when I see him out in the world, I feel like he's my childhood love, but also sort of like a good acquaintance friend, and we should probably get to know each other better. And so I often find myself requiring more emotional support from Zach than I would ever ask of a friend I only knew a few months because I'm like, no, no, no. Remember when I had that and I lost the baby and we like cried together? That's that that be was so real crazy. for me. Yeah, right. It's it, it your body doesn't know the difference. And the biggest example I had of that was when Quentin, who plays the angel, spoilers, is in the full suit and he attacks me and we shot that. I felt like I was being attacked and my whole, whole self freaked out. Like I, that stuff that's happening on the ground in the cemetery before I start clipping the wings. But when he comes to get me, I had a whole different game planned out for that. And just, he's, he's a very tall man. That suit is very heavy and he was very scary in it because so much of it was practical that my body didn't know that I was acting. It thought I was in danger. And so that to me, even now is like sort of a white hot memory. And I get a little freaked out when I see Quentin and I have to kind of process that because he's like the sweetest human. And he's just like a tall gangly guy with like kindness. And the the angel wears Uggs in between takes, just like the rest of us. (laughs) I have that picture. Love it. But luckily Mike and Trevor have put together a cast that has some of the best hearts and some of the most compassion of any human beings I've ever met. So when I get confused between Zach and Riley, he, he doesn't, he doesn't get mad about it. Like some people would be like, stop being so weird. Stop with all your weird projections. He just kind of understands that feeling because he was going, we were both going through so much with COVID and it was the birth of his son and he was missing it. And we were trapped in Canada and we just, it was, we were just so close. And now we're back to being normal friends and acquaintances. It is um, the closest thing I can describe it to for people who have not worked on a film or a TV show like this is if you went to summer camp, Mm -hmm. like a sleepaway camp and you go there and you're with these people for six weeks, but you're with them all day and all night. And so you feel like they're your best friends and leaving feels traumatic. But once you're a little bit out of it, you're like, Oh, okay. Okay. It was an experience but I love these people for, I bet it's like the bachelor. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. It's, like it's exactly what it's like. 
Yeah. And so I guess I was on The Bachelor. (laughs) (laughs) My time on The Bachelor really changed me. (laughs) This journey. If I'm not mistaken, the first scene you filmed, I believe, was that epic scene in the boat at the end of episode five. I remember Mike looking at the schedule and one day coming home to dinner and he'd been working the schedule the whole time, which is its own beast because of COVID and trying to figure out, we didn't know how it was going to go. We didn't know. They think they gave an extra three days every, I mean, three hours every day for COVID bullshit as they called it. Cause nobody knew what was going to happen. Like, so Mike came home and he was like, Hey, how do you feel about doing the rowboat on day one? And I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Ha ha ha. That's so funny. Nobody would what? You're going to what? <laughs> <laughs> you want, you want me to start where? Oh God. And, and he laid out his reasons, all of which made perfect sense, including the fact that like Zach has been a professional on TV for decades. And so he's going to show up on day one ready. And that Mike trusted me to show up and do my job and not to walk off set, which is rare for him. He almost always thinks I'm about to storm off at any moment, but it was the first day and, and there was something, and I think it was there from the chemistry read when Zach and I lock eyes, we just trust each other. We just know that wherever you go, man, I'm going and I'll follow you into hell and back. And that is something you can't fake. And I guess that's why they do chemistry reads. I wanted to ask you Kate too, about some of the initial scenes that we see as viewers when we're in the church and listening to father Paul attack these sermons and you look at all the, the inhabitants of Crockett Island and drawn to tears while they're listening to him speak. And when we're watching, we start tearing up listening to how he's talking about abstract metaphors, colorful exaggerations, and all these wonderful sermons that he's giving that are incredibly impactful. What is it like to be in the room while that's happening and watching Hamish perform these? It was the easiest acting I've ever done. Being swept away by Hamish was as easy as breathing. And you talked earlier about the musicality of the show. And yes, the Newtons are a huge part of that. But Hamish is also a huge part of that because the musicality of his sermons and the way he delivers them and when he chooses to pull off of sound, when he chooses, I always think about that. And in the darkest of times, we sing. Yes. And that, that tonally, it, re- it brings something up in you. And I think Zach had the harder job looking at Hamish and thinking that it was bullshit because it was real for Hamish. He was doing full sermon when it wasn't his coverage. And all of us were just dropped in. So yeah, the easiest acting I've ever done. Wow. Uh, Mike, how about directing that? Did he just bring that to the table and were you kind of like, whoa, okay, go. Or did you have to steer it in any particular direction? I, I did very little with the cast in this, in this show. I, I, you know, the, a lot of, a lot of the material was written for a lot of the actors. And then the rest of it was, I, I think half the battle is just putting the right actor in the right part. Yeah. Um, I got to sit back and watch the show with popcorn and then come in and make the tiniest little tweaks. Wow. It was really, it was, it was, and, and so far as Kate's talking about the easiest acting, it, it was also some of the easiest directing of my career because the the cast fell off the truck in such incredible shape. And they also, this is the other Hamish benefit, is that when you've got a room full of actors watching you just give this soaring homily, 
they're not going to show up tomorrow and fuck up. So they, the, the <laughs> actors were sets the bar. Oh yeah, no. They, hey, they, hey, my monologue yeah. day was before all the homilies. That's true. So I could have fucked up all I wanted. No, but you and Zach kept like pushing each yeah. other up, and, and yes, so th- there was true. this sense with this huge cast, and every day you were watching people do like career best level work. That the actors, I'm sure this was pressure, but they'd be like, "I'm not, I'm not going to follow that and suck." So they they were um, leveling each other up all the time. Yeah. And, um, I, I remember actively kind of some of the best directing I maybe did was telling Zach how good Hamish was or telling, yesterday Hamish just <laughs> floored all of us. It was breathtaking. But anyway, uh, so you're up and good luck. Um, and, and just he kind of, winding he's him not up. joking. I did, did do that he used a lot. To do- he would put me and Sam against each other in the same way. Like, ooh, Sloy, and you should have seen that revelation speech. You oh, didn't she even just, know. She just ran away with the show. Anyway, uh, good luck <laughs> with your scene. Yeah. Anyway, what does happen when we die? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it was um, this, this, you know, I've, I've said in a few places, like this, this is the best cast experience I've ever had um, by, by a lot. And this group of people day to day was such a joy, not only to watch the work that they did, but just to be among them yeah just to be kind of in in the energy that this ensemble created i've never seen anything like it at work and to the point that i'm desperate to recreate it by trying to get these same people back as many times as i can although we'll never be able to to recreate it we were in this isolated bubble while the world was burning down and we kind of only had each other so like that's never going to be recreatable but yeah, I, I really, I wish I could take credit for uh, directing Hamish and Zach and Kate, you know, through through these huge soaring kind of pieces of performance they did. But most of the time I'd sit back and there were times I'd come out and I'd ask for another take just so I didn't look useless. Right. <laughs> And, and just kind of say, you know, well, we'll do one for safety. And on this one, why don't you try to speed up the middle? <laughs> um, and they, yeah. and they, okay, yeah, I can try. I could try that. Yeah. Uh, and I remember for all of them, there'd be times Kate would be like, nothing. You got nothing for me. And it's like, I have nothing for you. But I, I would say it a lot. I have nothing for you, but gratitude. That's oh, yeah. very yeah. nicely I will t- No, he's selling himself real short here because it became... Um, sort of a thing among the cast about when you got your Flanagan truth bomb because people were desperate for it. So during these speeches, I remember Rahul asking for them during the PTA scene or the the Mm. scene about Bibles in school. And he being like, I'm just waiting for that moment when Mike hands me a key, just like, cause, cause Michael come out and he's so surgical in his direction. And it's so specific to each actor. And he knows the material inside and out that he'll throw something across your way that you never thought of but it's like a just a little phrase and then it explodes everything you've done and all of a sudden it makes sense and there were ones for me that was like in the last monologue he told me he came out and we've got i think we did the seven takes of that one which is a mm-hmm. lot for mike especially with those yeah. slow pushes and we were talking about the sort of the end after I've figured I've talked about like returning and the dropping and not breathing and the fireworks in my brain. And the line is, and that's what we talk about when we say the word God. And it was when the monologue needed to shift into the next gear. And I knew it wasn't quite shifting and I was lost. And he walked out and he goes, what if the emphasis is on the word that's 
And then he walked back to the tent. And I was like, that is the worst. You, are, I need direction. And you're giving me line <laughs> readings. And, ah! and you know, I'm looking at Zach. And Zach's like, I, I'd like to get to lunch at some point, Kate, if you can just figure this out. <laughs> and he's right. And if you watch it, there is a light that happens in Aaron's head, a light bulb that goes off and, and shines in her eyes where she goes. And that's what we're talking about when we say the word God. And it switches the mm. argument and all mm. of a sudden things can start rolling and she can start truly returning to the ocean of which she's always been a part. But that is a, an example of when Mike knows exactly what to do for the actor in the moment to unlock them. He just got me out of my rhythm, which is what he was doing. And I, it's why I would work for him if he was directing an Arby's commercial. I would be like, I'd like to see that. Oh, I would I like to that. eat that. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Whenever the moon is full, it's out there. In the shadows, in the fog, watching and waiting to strike. Now, from the master of mystery and suspense, Stephen King's Silver Bullet. The Last Glimmering Hope. Stephen King's Silver Bullet. From Paramount Pictures. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. I have a question from a Scarlet. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know her. Uh, she wanted to ask Kate how you memorize your lines in those monologues. Like, how long does it take you to memorize all those words? First of all, Mike will say that I'm always 85% off book. So a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it is um, a very sweet script supervisor who has what I believe to be the worst job on set which is after every take coming in and be like, okay, so um, you said this, but the line is this. So can we try one where you say the line? (laughs) 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 But what I do to get to that 85 to 95% off book to 99% off book to a hundred percent off book is um, I walk. So I walk around the neighborhood or I get on a treadmill if I'm at a hotel somewhere and I have the pages in front of me and I just get it in my body and I walk until it's done because my brain is always looking for patterns and rhythms. And so if I memorize it sitting down, I will create a pattern of speech that I can't break out of. And that's what makes it sound fake. That's what makes uh, lines sound like you've said them a million times is you're decided on a vocal pattern and you're going to stick with it. And so when I give my brain the distraction of the pattern of walking, the then it won't put that into the words. And I can then say the words however I want. And then oftentimes, because when we're trying to remember, when we're trying to come to com- conclusions, we go back into our brain and see the pictures. The walking helps with that because then I can connect certain thoughts to like the light through the leaves. And then I think of that when I'm saying the words, and now I've tricked you into believing that I've said the word that I'm thinking of the words got I'm it. saying. Oh, interesting! Wow, that is fascinating. And Kate, when you got to take off, don't be afraid to just say, "Hey, I got to take off." Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, all right, okay. cool. I wanted to address episode three. Lauren and I, when we watched wow. it, that was the one for us that we were just like, "All right, 
this is the best thing we've ever seen, hands down. So episode three, we have a lot of stuff going on, right? We have the incredible, first of all, the confrontation of Lisa and Joe Coley. Yeah. Which yeah. we My were- My favorite scene in the whole show. In tears. That's a great scene. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Take us to filming that scene, the vibe on set, what you were feeling when you saw the performances and how it affected you. Well, you know, Robert Longstreet is- profoundly talented actor and so there was never any doubt in my mind that he was going to be shattering what was what where the energy of that scene lives though is with anara simone Mm -hmm. and this was her first job what yes wow um and this is one of her first scenes that she filmed oh my Um, god this was also her audition scene that she had self-taped and so Inara kind of came out of nowhere. We looked at hundreds of people to play that part. And uh, that was the scene that I was like, the, everything hinges on that scene and how you find the balance between rage and grace. And that's mm. hard for us to do as adults, much less for a younger actor to have to channel. And so she did an extraordinary job in her audition, but then was learning the, the the basic vocabulary of what it meant to go to work on a film set, you know, what it meant to hit a mark, what it meant for coverage, um, what the different crew positions were, how to interact with the cast. And Inara was very brave, but also it was all very new. And so the vibe on set that day was very much, okay, we've got Robert who we don't need to worry about. And we have Inara and we need to support her in whatever way we can. Um, so we, we had built the the trailer set on a stage uh, we rehearsed it, but I told them not to not to really act in the rehearsals or the blocking. I wanted them to save it, you know, save it for the moment. And we were doing duration takes. So it was walk her in, get her to turn off the TV. But once she starts, don't interrupt. Don't, you know, break it up into coverage. Just let her go all the way through. And so she only did a handful of takes. She was crushing it out the gate. And she was standing toe to toe with who I think is one of the most skilled actors in our company with with Robert who is just able to summon such raw emotion that it's like, and here's this young brand new actor who's kind of toe to toe with him and has to, has to, has to deliver the pressure she was under was extraordinary. She did an amazing job. What you see on the screen is one of her early takes and she leveled Robert to the point that he was crying down his face and sobbing through all of her coverage. So we, we spent all, all morning filming her side of it. And I was telling everybody, oh, she just ran away with the episode because, you know, that helped stoke them up. And um, and that she she had just, you know, gone toe to toe with one of our best actors and just really nailed it. She did such a good job that by the time we turned around on Robert, he had uh, done something which he knew was a possibility um, and is a, a big problem for actors. He had cried himself out and nothing would come for his coverage. Um, his eyes were dry. Uh, it, it's, it's like dehydrating. That's he, he had cried so yeah. hard on her side <clears throat> that no matter what happened, he could not summon tears and he was panicking. So mm. what started with, uh, we need to, we need to put all of our resources into supporting Inara turned out not to be necessary. And in doing so, we had left Robert out like alone, um, and adrift. And so the whole thing switched after that to how do we support Robert and how do we get him up there? And uh, it was another one of those things where he, he had burned a few takes. He wasn't feeling good about it. He was like, I'm 
outmatched here. You know, she's she's so good. I'm I'm and he got in his head and it started to fall down. And I came out to him and we talked a little bit about forgiveness and we we talked a little bit about guilt. And then I told him we were going to move on and we weren't. But I was like, we have it. Don't you worry. And I could see the deflation of that. And then I told him uh, that I had built one more safety close up that we would come in and get. And that's the one that you see. So you see. You monster. You're a monster. Wow. And so. But it worked. It it jump started him again. And and, um, forget about this non-directing bullshit. Look uh, at this. It's all manipulation. It's all manipulation. It's genius. No, um, it's genius. He knows when to do it. But he knew he had had given the best performance of the scene off camera for for the first half of the day on her side. And, And he knew it. He got it back and then some. And what you see in that last moment is such a cathartic because he went through the journey he had to go through for the scene, which was he felt in the course of her of her thing. He felt like he had made all the choices he made, but then he felt the insecurity and he felt completely unmoored and he felt ashamed. He felt ashamed that he wasn't bringing it. And all of those authentic feelings erased whatever prepared choices he'd made. And all of that yeah. then comes up as this very real, just cauldron of shame and release and elation and regret. And all of it happens at once. And that's kind of the thing is, is knowing when an actor's where they need to be is another big part of it. And keeping, keeping that environment going. And that happened with Kate uh, on her, her yeah. last, yeah, her, her last shot when we were booming down on her while she's bleeding out. Yeah. Seven. And we'd already recorded the monologue months before then. And oh my uh, God. we had it playing back. And, and what she had to do was lay there for the duration of the entire thing while a camera slowly boomed into a close up as she laid on the <laughs> ground dying. And she doesn't have any words. But that's the it's also my last shot of the whole and series. It was the last like thing we that, filmed that's, her. that's my yeah. rap. It was the same thing where she's like, well, well wait, because uh, we had done the monologue and, and she's like, well, it's all going to be on that. And I was like, well, no. Most of the edit's going to be on this. Most of it's going to be on this face where we hear you, but we're not seeing you. And all of the stress and all of the insecurity and all of her anxiety about the performance and all of it roared up, I think, on take three of of that. And the support mechanism went running at her. The uh, hair and makeup who have been with her on this journey the whole time went running in to comfort her. And this is where I feel like a terrible person doing my job. But I had to I had to stop them. Yeah. And say, get away from her. She's exactly where she needs wow. to be to, to deliver yeah. this scene. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm truly, honestly sobbing so hard because I feel in my heart that I'm going to drop the ball at the one yard line. Yeah. And that she I'm going to do I'm this whole performance. Yeah. I'm going to fuck this one thing up and it's, I, and it won't count. The rest of it doesn't work. If I, if I drop it at the one yard line, I'm going to let everybody down. I'm going to let myself down. I'm going to fail and I feel like I'm going to die. And hair and makeup is there going, no, you're amazing. You're so beautiful. You look like Linda Evangelista. I love you. And Mike's going, no, you know, <laughs> that's how Aaron feels. He's like a roaring lion. Like, no, that is exactly it. Aaron is like in this moment, she does not know if she is going to complete the job and save the children. Yes. Just roll, roll it, roll it. And I was, I was like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. And then it's over and we got it and we can feel we got it. And I'm supposed to, at the end of it, they say that's a wrap on Kate Siegel and everyone claps. Then actor's supposed to give a little speech because the people who do the hard work, the crew don't get clapped off. So you then turn and thank them. 
I could not pull myself together. I was just completely just a mess. I was just sobbing and I had to leave. I had a speech. I didn't get to say my speech. Oh, well. Do you but, still have the speech? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what she's been saying it, uh, daily since right. then. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody. We couldn't have done this without you. Just being nominated. Is, oh, wait. No, sorry. Um, listen to the wrong speech there for a second. But yeah, no, it's Michael say he doesn't do anything in the show. Like he doesn't do the directing, but he's wrong. What he does is he has an instinct for loving actors. He knows how to love the specific actor. Like what he did for Robert Longstreet is very different than what he would have done for Zach in that moment. And what he did for me at the end is very different than what he did for Inara on the day. And it doesn't come from a manipulative place. It comes from a care and tending of his actors as people and artists. It comes from respect, which is what he has for everybody on his sets. Right after that scene, we head into this amazing exchange between Samantha Sloyan and Raul Coley in the classroom about the Muslim religion, which was fascinating to listen to as someone who I'm pretty ignorant to, to all that. I didn't know the story. And to hear that in that way was just amazingly profound yeah. to me. Two amazing actors. Talk about the experience working with both of them, Samantha and Raul, the two kind of polar opposites in this story as well, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I love that scene. I think that scene's electric uh, between oh, yeah. them. And and that was one where I remember Rahul came in playing it very defensive. He was like, I'm, a, I'm going into battle. And that was, that was the, yeah, his little, his piece of direction that day that he liked it. I was like, you're not, you're inviting them in. This is the opposite of battle. You need to be um, gentle and inclusive and dignified. And that's what you need to do. It, dignity. dignity. You said, you said yep. dignity, right? Yep. And that was it. That was his bomb. Show dignity. them dignity. And, and we ended up writing that into his monologue after that. But, and then with Sam, it's like that part in the hands of a lesser actor can always just go just mustache twirly Mm. you know and samantha always understood deep down that bev is the hero of bev's story and that that she's like i'm not playing a villain i'm playing the hero in a room that doesn't understand me yeah yeah and and so you you put those two energies together and then um what makes their what makes their performance so amazing in that isn't just what they did with each other which is wonderful it's how to respond to their interaction is cued for you by some exceptional active listening on the part of the rest of the cast, because it's not just watching what they do. It's watching the looks that Kate and Rahul share when they're not speaking and coupling that with Truco and Crystal looking over at him while he talks and the different things that are going through their minds. And it's, it's a scene I, I love because it does, it does contain, I think a lot of information in there about Islam that I think a lot of people don't know right. or, or don't understand. And, and that was something that um, Rahul's uh, got a wonderful friend, Mohammed Buisa, who was one of, one of several consultants um, uh, who's a, a Muslim living in the UK. And he consulted on the scene and was one of the first to kind of say like, this is, if I had a chance to talk about, you know, about the Quran and in particular about how we view Jesus, these are some of the things I would make sure to hit. And so it was just as simple as incorporating that. It's, it's a scene I adore. It used to be a minute longer and I miss that minute. 
what was um, the extra minute? What would it was just more? It was more of what's there, but yeah. it, it was wonderfully performed and just interesting information. And and one of the things, especially now that the show's out, like one of the things that I I wish I could go back and do is restore some of the stuff that we cut to try to to thin it down. And um, I could watch the the longer version of that scene, and I did all day that day. It was it was an incredible day to watch. You guys, I have to run. I'm so sorry. You oh, got it. Kate. I just like yeah. I can't handle all the praise for Sam and Rahul. I can't take it. It's too much for me. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go on Twitter and just like look at my mentions for a minute. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I love you guys so much. Thank you, Mike. Love please you, stay, Thank and you so much. he can speak for me. Trust me, and he'll do it better than I do. So that's all to you guys you soon. Love you, man. Bye. Bye. I want to get into the end of episode three when we get the big reveal. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, this is breathtaking. So I wanted to just ask you about, I guess, the design of the angel itself. Yeah. So we combined two things. One, one was we went through biblical descriptions of angels, which are, are described to be terrifying. Right. And I wanted to to marry that with Klaus Kinski from Herzog's Nosferatu, which is my favorite vampire film. And so the direction that, that we gave Fractured was biblical angelic descriptions plus Klaus Kinski. And uh, the design they came up with, I, I love for that. But it, it, I was like, it has to be true to vampiric lore, but we have to understand something about it that feels biblical and that feels like a fallen angel or that, that subscribes to that kind of that Dante imagery. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a really tough balance to find. And I hope we did, but I, I love the design of, of him and he's, he's, he's essentially a practical effect. He had wings, he had all of it. We augmented uh, some of the wings and removed the puppeteers um, digitally. And sometimes like when, when he really opens them up and stuff like that. And when he's flying, of course they're all digital, the wings are, but um but yeah, it was it was really neat. And that that whole sequence in F3 is funny to me because it was in the original scripts for the show that we would go to the Holy Land and we would see everything that played out in the cave and in the desert. Then while we were in prep and about to start shooting, all of that was cut. Oh, um, wow. By Netflix, who we, we were always wrestling a budget. And they said, well... We don't think we, you know, that's a huge line item to get that. And we don't think it's quite worth it. Find another way to tell the the Pruitt story um, without the expense of seeing it. Um, and they, that was the, that was the marching order. So we did it and that's what got the show on budget. And the solution to that was to do the wood carving stations at the cross over a confessional monologue. And we did that. And we had the the carvings all hand done by an artist in Vancouver. And, and it, the entire scene was just Hamish in the confessional and it cut to the carvings. That was it. And in the interim, there was a whole shakeup at Netflix and the whole executive structure changed. And the people who greenlit the show weren't there anymore. And now there's a whole new, whole new thing. And um, we finished the show. We, we turned in the cuts and, they were looking at episode three and saying, you know, we just want more visceral scene work with some more genre moments. You know, what, what if we were going to shoot some additional material? Do you have any ideas that we could really beef up that confession scene? And it was like, you know, now that you mention it, <laughs> I could imagine a version where what if 
we saw what happened in the Holy Land um, and just intercut it. And they're like, oh, okay. And I was like, and I might even be able to, I could very quickly write some script pages that are dated a year and a half ago that you guys cut <laughs> that you guys can see. And, and so we sent this new material over that was not at all new. And they said, this is great. We should shoot this. And I was like, well, and we're back and we're back. Uh, and so we got to do what we wanted to do in the first place as this new thing that, that was kind of tacked on. Um, the benefit was now we had the confession and the, and the wood carvings, which you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so it's a, it's a hybrid sequence because we weren't, we were, and then we weren't supposed to have it. It's one of the biggest and kind of most expensive chunks of the show. We built the wailing wall on a stage in Vancouver. That's a stage huge build. We had the largest production light I've ever had in any, anything I've ever done. That was our, our son. Um, to make it feel yeah. like it was yeah. sunlight. Oh, it felt like outside, yeah. Oh, no. And when you were in there, it felt like it. And that thing turning on and heating up was like, oh my God. Um, we had all these extras, all local, all Vancouver locals. And we had kind of painstakingly recreated recreated the, the whaling wall. <laughs> and and um, that, was, that was the moment where I had already had a cameo in the show in episode one. Um, and I'm, I'm just on a porch sipping coffee across from Lisa in the very beginning when the boys pull up on the bikes. Um, and that was my cameo in the show. And yeah. the, the mailbox of that house has my name on it. And it was the whole thing. And uh, when we were doing the, the wall, I was like, I, I really want to, I really want to <laughs> be in the show in a way that I get to like be part of Pruitt's story um, and interact with Hamish. And um, so Hamish is there and he's in his, hundred pounds of, of age makeup and prosthetics. And they had, you know, I got to be an actor for the day and I'm in my little trailer and makeup and everything. And we had all these extras who had heard a rumor that they were like, we heard like the directors like in this scene. And I'm like, yeah, that's him over there. Uh, <laughs> it, it was our costumer, uh, Terry, our, our, our costume designer was also in the scene. We had a whole subtext going on. You guys miss. They, they didn't use it in the edit. It was awesome. Really? We were doing a lot going like he was there to assassinate me. I'd been evading him. We, we had this whole backstory. backstory? Oh, my God. Um, my character's name was Pope Incognito. <laughs> and he was uh, he's actually the Pope. And there's a plot against him. And they sent. Father Terry the Assassin uh, after him, and I was on the run. Um, we had a lot going on. None of it made the final cut, which I'm I'm still mad about. But uh, I told most of the extras that he was the director, and that was fun. And then Hamish, because uh, this was all additional photography. This is after we'd wrapped Principal. We, we were doing this long, you know, long at the end of it. And um, Hamish came back to to do to do all this stuff and. Um, and he said, now who's playing this, uh, this priest who comes up to me? Like, well, that's the good news. <laughs> it's me. And we're going to, I think we just ad lib because this could be a whole other episode, like a bottle episode about these guys. And, and he's like, oh, okay, no problem. And take after take, he just fucked with me. Like I would walk up and I'd say, Hey, Hey, cause I was not a good actor. <laughs> and, hey, it's a, this way this way and as i'd kind of put my arm around his shoulders and lead him away he would just do something like he'd reach down and just like go boop and poke me in the belly <laughs> like uh, at least one time he had his hand on my ass while we walked away <laughs> um 
And he would just, or he'd just start saying insane stuff or like singing old show tunes right. and stuff. Um, and so it was impossible to get through a take. And we, we just kept going again and again. And I'd have to run back to the monitor to watch it. Because <laughs> I'd be like, I feel like that was a really good take. But then I'd watch it and be like, he seriously yeah, has he his has hand on my right, ass right. the whole time. And so we'd have to do it again. And the extras at this point are starting to be like, what, what is happening? Like, <laughs> why can't we just get, all he has to do is walk up and say, it's this way. Yeah, that's it. And and we've been here for an hour and a half. <laughs> and the take that's in there is I thought we'd had a we'd had a good take and I wanted to do a big gag cuz I decided that my character had a catchphrase. <laughs> and that his catchphrase was cuz he's Pope Incognito and his catchphrase was this guy am I right? <laughs> and that he would the way he delivered it was always directly into the lens no matter where the camera was. And so I, I had done it on one giant wide <laughs> shot. You can see the shot in the show. It's really huge wide. And I'm sitting on a chair. Uh, I'm, I'm just a few feet behind Hamish while he's at the wall and he turns around and he looks all disoriented. Confused, yeah. And the shots like way back in the corner. And I looked even in the wide, I looked right down the barrel and I went, this guy, am I right? <laughs> um, but you can't, you can't see that because the editor, um, <laughs> But the uh, the take that's in the show, I, I it, we thought we were done and it was all bullshit. And I was like, we'll do one more because I wanted to go get him and turn right to the camera and say, this guy, am I right? Because that's the only reason I wanted to do any of it. Um, and that's the take that's in the show. No way. Yes. And it uh, it was the only one because I wasn't trying to act and because I was really just teeing up the, the joke that it was perfect. That's the only one where I don't look like a total fucking idiot. <laughs> trying to trip through the lines because i wasn't thinking about the lines anymore when i finally went back and looked at all the takes i was like i suck at this and i'm distractingly bad at acting which is why hamish just kept trying to i think loosen me up right. by being like, <laughs> um but I, i'd come in and be like monsignor it's this way it was very very bad but because all i wanted to do was my dumbass joke that take works yeah because i'm just not thinking about it and it cuts the frame before I turned, looked right down the barrel with a dumbass grin on my face and went, this guy, am I right? <laughs> and <laughs> um, that's what made it into the show. And uh, which I'm sure is not what you wanted to talk about. When no, you I, about love episode, I love but, it. I love it. Have you ever. seen it? Everybody's looking at that scene and going, oh, there's a devil shadow against the wall what? when Pruitt turns around. Yeah, there's a whole like a blogs about it, dude. Someone came at me and they were like, we figured out why Bev poisoned uh, Father Paul. And I'm like, wait, what now? And they're like, yes, you know, because Bev poisons Father Paul in episode three. And I'm like, I, it's news to me. That's incredible how yeah. people just go and make their own shows and really run with it. Yes. I wanted to ask you about episode six, the processional. And yes. coordinating this massive sing-along with multiple camera angles how did you put that together? That's one of my favorite stretches of the show. It's scripted to the line of the hymn, what we're cutting out to. It was all kind of metered to the, to the lyrics of the hymn. Yeah. Um, principal cast are wearing earwigs so they can hear a guide track that, uh, that Andy had put together. Um, so they're all on key and they, can, and they can sing. And then they were meant to guide everybody else. So it started with Sam and Truco and Inara and Crystal just wearing the earpiece and it would start to play and they would sing along with it and they'd feel really insecure about it. 
Um, but to shoot that sequence, it's spread out over weeks, maybe even months while we were there. And uh, we, we used real candles so they would go out or we, we'd just be relying on the actual candle flames. I remember the big shot where you see Sturge clipping the wires yeah. and then we pan over and you see in the distance everybody walking. We just we just did that. And he walked down the hill and we were racing because there was a huge storm coming in. And as soon as he makes it to the bottom, it just downpour, you know, rained on everybody and knocked out the candles. I found that sequence to be one of the most exciting to shoot. It, I knew when it cut together and we had had the music behind it and the full force of of the organ and, and everybody in the church when they finally landed, it was going to be breathtaking. None of that was there on the day. And um, we were up against two funny things, which was that nothing is scarier in the middle of a pandemic than singing. So every person in there had to be tested daily, rapid tested before they'd be allowed on set. The other one was that according to the unions, if you sing as a background performer, it upgrades you. Um, Oh, interesting. And so what I was told for budgetary reasons was that almost no one in that group was allowed to make noise. You had the principal cast singing with their, their earwigs. They had the, the song piped through and everybody else was kind of pantomiming because they weren't allowed to sing. And if they sang, then we couldn't use it um, because they would have to be upgraded. The other thing that we got into was that they weren't allowed to lip sync. And yeah, it it got crazy. And so they had to kind of mouth words that were similar to the lyrics of the hymn. So what it really looked like in the moment was you'd have Sam and Truco and Inara with their candles singing and you'd have all these people walking beside them just going like. That is wild. Yeah. And and um, so the majesty and the, the beauty of the of the whole sequence was entirely absent you know, on set, it, it really was, I mean, it looked amazing and the town was dark, you know, we'd killed all the, cause we, you know, the street lights and the building lights, what we used to work yeah. and we'd kill everything, light the candles, everybody would go. Um, but you'd only hear like these seven actors singing very self-conscious that they're singing in right. <laughs> or you know, lip syncing actual words yeah. or whatever. Right. Um, and I, I love that sequence, but it, it was, uh, it was really something shooting it just cause it was so, kind of anticlimactic and and i would say on the day like when we put this all together it's going to be beautiful and just you know really really impactful you're all going to feel real stupid though until then right yeah and you just have to lean into that but it it, uh yeah I, i love that stretch the decision to leave the camera hanging not the camera hanging but the sound hanging what happens at the end of episode five and we're in the boat and you keep that going you keep Kate screaming throughout. We didn't know that we were going to do that until we heard what she was doing. There are three takes of her in the boat. We uh, knew at the time we didn't want to do music and that the impact of Riley dying was going to be devastating. And I think there's a line in the script that says over the, over the credits, you just hear the sound of the, the, uh, the fire and the waves. Mm -hmm. But Kate's performance was so heartbreaking and she just kept going on on the day that what you hear is all three of her takes cut together which is why it starts to ebb and then picks back up again that's actually another take 
I thought it was a great way to marinate kind of in the moment and to really feel it. And I was just so impressed with their work. The, the thing that we didn't count on and the thing I hate is that Netflix kicks you out of that moment by dumping you into the next episode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed the, <laughs> Yeah, that's part of the um, mechanics of that works. Right. I hate that yeah. so much. Yeah. I, I, it, it took a formal request and several weeks of negotiation to get Netflix to agree um, at the end of the show, not to go full frame with an advertisement on the first credit of the last episode. Mm. And we got them to agree finally uh, that they would let it play, I think for 30 seconds before they, they minimize the window and say, if you enjoyed that, you should watch this. Right, 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 um, right. And we asked on the other episodes so that it didn't dump you out. And they said, no, it's, it's a, a major part of the way Netflix works to kind of, propel you into another episode of something it's more active to say no i don't want to keep watching the show than it is to just keep watching a show and they take that very seriously and they're very they have all the numbers to back it up but they they say you know five seconds after you cut out a picture that's when you need the next episode to begin interesting yeah. did, now do they have anything to say when it comes to like previously on midnight mass <laughs> like do they was that a fight at all did you no, and they they're so committed to the binge model. I think sure. a lot of that stuff is a it's a it's a hangover from network. It's right. it's a hangover from when you've waited a, a a week to see the episode. And so shows that were originally aired that way still have that function on Netflix, but their original content they tend to just dump you in and out. They don't like to do credit sequences. Like they, they really just kind of want the whole thing to just play and right. if if the best version of things for them is if you're never even momentarily tempted to stop watching whatever you're watching. Right. So anything that can be repetitive, like a, a credit sequence is repetitive. So they don't like it. Anything that doesn't feel like brand new stuff being fed into your, into your eyeballs, um, they're going to want it to pull out of and credits are, you know, lethal to that because unless you worked on the show, you know, what, what are you going to get out of sitting through the credits? And my argument of, <laughs> These episodes require digestion and especially episode five sitting with it and soaking it in before you go into the next episode is important it was not an argument I was ever going to win on this show. As we wrap up here and come to the end, there's a, a listener of ours sent us a question for you. Very, yeah. very good question. Brittany Riddell, and she's a huge fan of your work. She wants to know how you so beautifully tap into vulnerability. When you write, especially with character monologues, she'd love to hear about your process when you're exposing part of yourself in the fictional aspect of writing. Hmm. That is a great question. Writing, writing is a very vulnerable thing, but it's also the safest thing because when you're sitting and writing something personal, you are completely at that moment unexposed. It'll only after that kind of open up to more and more people and eventually it'll be out there for everybody. But it's the easiest thing to do alone in a room when you don't have to show an actor, you don't have to show an executive. There's, there's safety on the page to start. Now, getting to a place in my career where I've felt comfortable knowing that that page is going to be handed to an ever growing group of people until finally it's just out for everybody. 
that's that's something that has taken me years of getting used to that certainly now um is is on my mind as, as i'm working on on anything personal or uh working on anything that i know i feel vulnerable while i work on um i have to bear in mind where it's going to go and how it can be interpreted misinterpreted and even even more importantly knowing that anything i say at a certain point will uh be available to my kids and available to them likely after i'm gone that's made it easier in one sense to be vulnerable because i'm not going to be here forever for them if i'm very lucky i'll be here when they're adults but that's not a guarantee either and at a certain point they're going to want to know or i hope they're going to want to know who i was and to get to know me in a way that they couldn't get to know me by living with me and being raised by me because there's so much and i feel it every day there's so much that you put on when you deal with your kids and you guys know this yeah. you, you yeah you wear your role and you want to make sure you're only showing them the right version and the useful version or the brave version you know there's stuff you don't want your kids to see so whenever i get nervous or i feel particularly vulnerable um, and in this show in particular there were long stretches and long speeches about you know i i tried to when i think about what what happens when we die where where are we going what's the point of all this i don't know that i'm ever going to be in a scenario where my kids will ask me that explicitly and if they did if i'd ever be prepared enough to be able to answer it because you have to sit and think and you got to get it right working on this show i got to sit and write and rewrite and come back to it a week later and read it again and edit it and come up with the best answer that i could leave them that they could interrogate at any point in my absence and if they ever really wanted to say what what did dad think what what was important to him there's not another piece of work that has as many of those answers as this does and it's particularly special because you know a lot of the answers that are the most the ones that represent the most about how i feel are being delivered by kate so you know for for uh, cody and theo from for my littlest they they'll look at the best representation of what I believe as voiced by their mother. And what a, what a gift that is uh, for, for us. <laughs> like what a gift that is for me and Kate. I hope they'll think it's a gift uh, when the time comes, but it would be a lot more frightening to talk about alcoholism, um, to talk about sobriety if my son and i'm sure the day will come if if you know my 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 oldest son is about to turn 11 and if he comes to me and he says i i want to know about alcohol i want to know about why you got sober i want to know about that that part of you um which my you know my little kids never saw you know i don't know that i'd have the courage to answer that question and not to answer it honestly not to answer it completely i do my best however if i have riley say it and have him talk about it that 
requires less courage that 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 is easier somehow so yes it's vulnerable and and i i think i think and i'm sorry i'm rambling no no not at all i i think um i think what makes the difference for me at this stage in my career is that it's so much easier for me to write it to control it to cast it to direct it to edit it to score it to put it out there in its most polished form than it would be to honestly answer the question if asked point blank. Yeah, no, I get that. And, um, and so that's given me a lot, a lot to prioritize as I get older and as, as I continue to be allowed to work, I think now that midnight mass is behind me and, and so much, this was always the repository for so much of that stuff. And, and, now that it exists out in there in the world, at least until the Netflix servers, you know, sink into this, the, the core of the earth and then they're lost forever because there's no <laughs> fucking physical media. Um, at least until that happens, you know, the kids can always go and look at it. I, I think moving forward, you know, since then I've written, uh, done a lot of writing on, on the Midnight Club and now uh, the Fall of the House of Usher. And it's not the same. I'm not trying to be vulnerable. I'm not trying to be introspective. I'm not trying to dig deep and leave something for them. Like I, I got to do that and it'll be another decade or two before I maybe have a better answer for some of these things. But at the moment I'm like, that's done. Now I can just write, you know, I, I think of midnight club as, as a romp. And I think of the fall of the house of usher as heavy metal music. It's mm-hmm. like now, now I just get to play. And, um, and that's a relief, but, but yeah, uh, I'm thank, I thank you for that question because, you know, I think the, uh, when I think of midnight mass, the word that comes to mind the most is vulnerability and not just for me, but for my cast who I watched go through it every day, uh, for all of us who worked on it. For Trevor Macy, my producer, for Michael Fuminiari, my DP, this one made us all feel exposed and made us all feel vulnerable. Now that that's done, I, I don't imagine we have to go there again for a while, right. which is nice. But um, but yeah, I think long, long, long answer to a short question, but I, I think it's all if if there's any courage in my work at all, and I don't know that there is if there's any courage in, in there at all, it's, it's for, for my children. So, Is it hard to find time to write, to set aside and just actually dive into it with how busy you are? It, it's weird. The last couple of years, um, it's the opposite. It, it's been hard to find time to do other things. I've been on deadline for the last three and a half years. And, and, uh, I have a, a fixed, I have 10 pages a day that I have to write minimum that, to stay self-imposed on. deadline. If or I don't, I, I will miss the, I'll miss yeah. the dates. Yeah. I'll miss the prep date. I'll miss the shoot date. And so I've, I've been treading, not treading. Well, I've been drowning really for the last couple of yeah. years. And, and so writing <laughs> has been a necessity. It isn't like I, I have to try to make time to write. It really is. This is my day. I have to have 10 pages done before I go to sleep. Um, so I have to have 10 pages done today before I go to sleep. Wow. And after I leave here, we, you know, we're going to do another thing tonight. We're doing Mm -hmm. a Q and a at, at, uh, 
beyond fest and and uh so my challenge this morning was how do i how do i get my pages today and so I, I've, I've done four before i came here and, and when i go back i hopefully will do six before i see you guys later tonight yeah. at the screening but i rode on the plane yesterday coming to la i i write in the office i've written in uh, scout vans if we have a long drive i've yeah. written it's it's gotten to the point where I've hit a critical mass on writing where um, I spend most of my free time doing it. Now that I'm home for the weekend, which is a rare thing, all I want to do is sit and read a book. Just consume. Yeah. Uh, and, and relax. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to get to do that on this trip. And and so I'm, I'm really, um, I'm looking forward to when the last episode of The Fall of the House of Usher is finished and I'm... Uh, I'm halfway through episode six of eight. Wow. So I'm close. When that's done, for the first time in maybe four or five years, I don't have anything else to write except for the fucking season of passage. God damn it. <laughs> I heard about some comic uh, book too. <laughs> yeah. And I just remembered, God, <laughs> shit, that's a movie. Um, oh man. Well, at least it's just a movie. Oh yeah. The, it's, yeah. Uh, the comic book adaption. Uh, no, but the comic book, the, uh, something's calling the children. Yes. So I'm, I'm executive producing that show. Oh, okay. I'm not writing that show. There we go. Yeah. Uh, the writer's room is already open. It's open right now. And I pop in and I listen to stuff. And Trevor Macy's show running that show. Oh, that's great. So he's in it now. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a really neat reversal of our, of our typical dynamic. And I'm just like, yeah, how do you like it, Trevor? And I get to say to him like, so uh, when's that draft coming, dude? Right. Because we need to get going. Yeah. Um, but I get to function like a normal executive producer and I give notes and I, I react to things. But, um, you know, that that show is is on its own track and I don't have to write it, which is so great because I get to enjoy it <laughs> and not just be like in the middle of it. So, yeah, um, when Usher is done, I just have to I just have to write the season of passage movie. And then I've got nothing to write for a while and I might be able to take a, a break. But um I've, I've gotten to the point now, uh, I was doing it while you were talking earlier, where I will type as people talk. Um, it's, an, it's a reflex. And if I have my hands on a flat surface. Just muscle. Like, yep. Like, uh, uh, as I hear you saying words, I will type those words. Wow. And um, it's something you'll see me do this a lot. Uh, I, I physically have to hold my hands together and have something to grip to stop myself from the mechanical function of typing. And um, just this past year, I had a vicious carpal tunnel from it. I had to get wow. a lot of acupuncture. Oh my God. And it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about as athletic as, as a fraggle. So I, I, um, <laughs> fraggle. They, I just, I, they have no muscles. No. So I, I, I um, glass. yeah, I, 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 this is the closest I can imagine to having like a sports indis- uh, yeah. injury. Yeah. Is I I typed myself into pain and had to like I did to go twice a week to get acupuncture and try to get get my hand working again to type and I wear these big braces while I was typing and I got these weird ergonomic keyboards and vertical mouse and like all this stuff just to try to like make it through the writing without being in excruciating pain but I, it's gotten to the point now where it, you know I think I think I'm working on what's like my forty eighth episode of television draft right now and um it it's just become 
so much. And if I sit down and like I'm playing with the kids and I'm like eating dinner, there's this feeling that like I'm looking at the clock and I'm watching the time tick by and I'm yeah. dividing the available waking hours by how many pages I owe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, all right, so if I stay here and finish this game, I got to do, I got to do two pages an hour between now and, and sleep. And if I can do that, I think that's reasonable. Maybe not. And so it, it's, it's, uh, it's not healthy at the moment, but it's kept me working in, in an industry that is unforgiving. And right. where if you don't have your next thing, you might not get a next thing, you know, if, if your current thing doesn't perform as people hope. And I've always been lucky where I've had my underperforming projects and I've had a, I've had a handful of them that by the time the studio has looked around and said, Oh, that didn't go as well as we wanted it to. It's been too late for them to pull something away from me <laughs> because I'm already too far down, right, the, the, down the, the road on the next thing. But, um, but yeah. Last question. Yeah. The fall of the house of Usher. What about Edgar Allan Poe's world excites you? Uh, everything. Yeah. I, um, so I'm, I'm a Poe fanatic. I mean, Poe is one of my early introductions into, into genre, the, the Gothic dread of it, the madness, mm-hmm. his wicked sense of humor and irony. Um, the thing that I love about Usher is, you know, I, some people use this like it's a bad thing. I don't think it is, but a lot of the stuff I do is a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, the fall of the house of Usher is a brush fire. It is, uh, it is an explosion. It is as aggressive and rock and roll and over the top and, and just violent and insane and horrific as anything I've ever done by a lot. And, and so to get out of, um, you know, Hill House was deeply emotional and personal and Bly was like romantic and sad and mass is so fucking personal. And like to get out of that and just like pick up an electric guitar and just (laughs) be like, all right, everybody, like we're going to pull the, we're going to pull the, all the all stars from the intrepid group of actors and some great new faces. And we're just going to like fucking jam. And we want just buckets of blood, you know, pouring out of the ceiling on page two and just be like, we're just going to go, ballistic and we're going to do it all to the music of one of the most intensely effective gothic horror writers like this isn't henry james is like the ghost is polite right (laughs) you know like the the shirley jackson the ghosts are so polite they don't show up you know like the um they're 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 all about implication and it's like maybe the real ghost is how you feel right and and it's like And Poe, it's like, nope, you're going to get your face ripped off by a killer fucking chimp. And when we talk about death, it's going to show up at a party in a giant red cloak and just kill everybody there. And it's like this, this is what, this is what we've been craving is a chance to just like go ballistic on something. And, um, and it's like, you know, you think of poets, you think of fingernails breaking on coffins because you've been buried alive. And that's not even a unique experience for a Poe character. Right. Like that can happen numerous times. And and so we get to do the thing where we, the entire catalog of Poe is wide open. It's all public domain. We can go through and cherry pick whatever we want, put it into one giant crazy like heavy metal riff um, that's just blood soaked and, and wild. And it, in a sense, it's it's we get to blow off steam after like five very emotional years. Right. 
Um, and in another sense, it, it also lets me play in a corner of the genre I haven't gotten to play in in a long time. It's a relief, really. It's 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 fun to have fun and and to just make something that's going to be ballistic. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm really, really jazzed about it. We start shooting uh, in January, uh, assuming everything stays on track. And if I finish these scripts and um, and they're going to announce the cast at some point soon. But the cast is absurd and ridiculously exciting. And so I, I in a lot of ways, I view <laughs> I view the show as the reward. Like this is the candy reward we get (laughs) for having gone through just years of like sadness and, and having just done a, a huge personal show in the middle of a pandemic. And it's like, this is, we finally get to just like let our hair down and just like rock and roll. It's gonna be great. Oh dude, we cannot wait, man. Well, Mike, Thank you so much. I know we've fucking kept you forever, man. <laughs> I feel so bad. No, 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 no. This is this is great. I really, yeah. really appreciate it, man. And we can't wait to see, yeah, what you do with uh, Usher and God, and and to rewatch Midnight Mass a couple thousand fucking times. I know Leo's on his sixth watch. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah, sixth watch. Yeah, he could be here today, but yeah, Scarlett's watched it, it too. Yeah, she loved it. She loved it. Yeah. I'm dying it. to hear her take yeah. on it. Yeah. <laughs> she'll give it to yeah, you. Yeah, she'll give it to you. Dude, you appreciate it so much, man. Thank you so much. It, it is always such a joy uh, to be here with you guys. Thanks for having us. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 266. Special thanks to our guests, Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel. Follow at Flanagan Film and at Kate Siegel Official on Instagram and experience Midnight Mass exclusively on Netflix now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time. It is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. The bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.